Welcome to Places, Everyone. I'm Lonnie Firestone. In Will Arbery's play, Heroes of the Fourth Turning, which was a finalist for the Pulitzer Prize last year, a group of 20-something friends, all of whom are Catholic and politically conservative, gather for a party to toast their college professor, who has been named the president of their Catholic university in Wyoming. One of these friends is a young woman named Teresa, whose right-wing views cross into alt-right territory. She aligns herself with Steve Bannon, and feels a connection to white supremacist views that she hopes her professor will praise and support. When I watched this play, I found the character of Teresa fascinating, particularly the way she wields speech and language to assert her political views. I agree with almost nothing she says, but her love of debate is thrilling to behold, and her confidence is magnetic. Much of that is due to the actress playing her, Zoe Winters is my guest for this episode, who starred in Heroes of the Fourth Turning in its world premiere production at Playwrights Horizons, and reprised the role for a virtual performance during COVID that happened on Zoom, live in real time. Because Zoom is a platform built for back-and-forth dialogue, it was well-suited for a play that is distinctly talkative and intrinsically about the power of speech. It was a remarkable difference from the last time I saw Zoe perform, which was in Bess Wool's play Small Mouth Sounds, set at a silent retreat where Zoe's character, Alicia, spends the play attempting to withhold her speech. These two plays could not be more different, but as Zoe noted in our conversation, the two characters she plays are both coping with a certain kind of agony, and the response in one story is to confront it with persuasive speech projected outward, And the response in the other story is to confront it by withholding speech and reflecting inward. Furthermore, both plays are about seeking a deeper truth, either by speaking out or by being silent. In Heroes, the gateway to truth is vociferous discussion of religion and politics, while in Small Mouth Sounds, the gateway is silent reflection. It was a really interesting experience to take two of Zoe's roles that are entirely unrelated and home in on their points of comparison. I should note that Zoe has acted in tons of productions and several TV shows, so this was a rare opportunity to look closely at two roles and examine a theme across both of them. In this conversation, Zoe and I also talked about empathy and how it can be an essential point of connection or potentially misused, depending on the context and how it's done. I hope you enjoy this conversation about the power of speech. Here is my interview with Zoe Winters. Hello, Zoe. Hi. Thank you for joining me. And since we're at the tail end of 2020, happy new year. Yeah, happy new year to you as well. Amidst the sadness of closed theaters over the past many months, there was a a bright light for me one evening in my theater viewing, which was an online production of Heroes of the Fourth Turning by Will Arbery which you starred in and which you originally starred in at Playwrights Horizons. The play was also a finalist this past year for the Pulitzer Prize. And I have to say that seeing this production 
at home on my computer was a very surprisingly rewarding experience. I think it actually might be the most successful live theater thing I've done during COVID. I think that because I missed the real production, I thought I would have a chance to hear the reading. I had a very open kind of expectation, like this will be a chance to hear the play. And I didn't realize that it would actually be a theatrical event with lighting design, with direction. And I was so taken aback in really the best way. And Zoe, I loved your performance so much. Thank you. And I want to open this to a conversation about your character. But I want to frame it by saying that your character is distinctly vocal. She is litigious. She verbally spars with each and every character, among them old friends and a mentor. And I thought, what a challenge this must be to engage in this kind of performance when all the viewer has is your face. So in opening up this character and who she is, can you give a, a sort of a more general sense of the premise of Heroes of the Fourth Turning and why does your character have so much to say? <laughs> yeah, so this, the play takes place on the eve of uh, the inauguration of these students' mentor and teacher. She's just become the president of this Catholic college in Wyoming. And they all attended the college and now they're coming back years later and, and celebrating her inauguration. And they are meeting after having ventured out into their various different lives as adults. And they're coming back to a home base and engaging in debate and conversation and in Will's script of Heroes of the Fourth Turning, he describes the setting as a town of 7,000 in western Wyoming, August 19th, 2017, two days before the solar eclipse, one week after the Charlottesville riot, the night of Gina's inauguration as president of Transfiguration College of Wyoming. So it's during a very loaded and full moment and this group of students are coming back to have a reunion and to congratulate and celebrate the inauguration of their mentor and teacher. Helen Shaw wrote in her review of the play for Time Out, quote, it's hard to talk about Arbery's play in a way because there's so much talking in it. It's a structure of interweaving voices that never devolves into noise. And the voices aren't ones we hear often off-Broadway. They are deeply religious, profoundly Catholic, proudly conservative, sometimes messianic. The title of the play is, refers to a book that your character invokes called The Fourth Turning. Did you read that book and research it? And how did you conceptualize Teresa's, your character's fascination with its ideas? I, I, did, I did read the book, which is also something that Bannon quotes and, and kind of in some ways relies on for his 
I don't know what you call them, beliefs. But yeah, so I did read this book and it's essentially about cyclical evolution and how their analysis is that we're on the brink of a war, a crisis essentially. And so she takes that on. And that's also a lot of, Bannon has uh, said the same same thing in uh, a lot of his harrowing, terrifying speeches, such as at the Vatican and so on and so forth. But I, I read that book. I mean, it's not not a book I would you know recommend reading, but but she does quote it. So I did read it. And I think that it was interesting to go into the language of this person. And I I think that a lot of what I thought about when we were going into working on this play was we talked a lot about empathy in the room and the feeling of empathy. And Will has an amazing, Will Arbery, the playwright, has uh, an amazing essay on it in his Playwrights Perspective essay on, on playwrights website and, and Ashley Chang, who was our dramaturg and did an incredible job at just finding a wealth of information around these people's background and these people's beliefs and they're highly educated people. And, and so I had definitely a lot to learn because this was very much outside of my beliefs and outside of my spiritual views and so on and so forth. So we talked a lot about empathy and I feel like that really sculpted a lot of the ways that I kind of entered into this play and entered into the language that you've been talking about with this play. And I, I do think that you're right, that this was a conversation that audiences were not accustomed to. And I think that that's what a big driving force around creating this play was about providing access to these conversations that New York audiences and, and, and theater audiences aren't necessarily accustomed to being exposed to, conversations that they're not having or conversations that they are having, but they're pretending not to or they're having secretly. So I think that it was about providing access to a different kind of conversation than we're used to seeing. And I think that it's rare for audiences to have the entire voice of a play be a conservative voice and for an audience to really sit in a bubble of where definitely me, I speak for myself, sit in a bubble of, you know, a liberal bubble in New York and I have the conversations that I have and I'm not exposed to these kinds of conversations. So this was really time for the audience to sit back and be exposed to this conversation, to this bubble, how these people are talking to each other. And the dialogue is extremely rich and unapologetic and relentless, definitely in my case. And there's, so there's really no relief to it as far as if a liberal audience is trying to attach themselves or fasten themselves to a liberal perspective. I think that once you would try to attach yourself to someone's argument, they would turn around and say something that was, uh, difficult and really upsetting. So, but I think for me, as far as venturing into the language of this person, as far as venturing into the character of this person, was again, returning to this idea of empathy. And when Obama talks about empathy, of course you wanna believe in empathy. And so when the way he talks about it is amazing and then it can also be misused, I think. And both Ashley Chang, the dramaturg and Will Arbery talked a lot about this this writer, uh, Namwali Serpel, who wrote this incredible essay called The Banality of Empathy. And in it, she talks about Hannah Arendt's uh, skepticism of empathy. And we also, my character definitely talks about Hannah Arendt as well, who was a German-American philosopher and political theorist. And she talks a lot about representative thinking. And so rather than fully inhabiting someone or, or becoming someone, she says one trains one, one's imagination to go visiting. And that's really how I got into the arguments and to the approach with 
taking on Teresa and taking on Teresa's language and her debate and her relentless dialogue and passion. And I really kind of got rid of feeling altogether in my relationship Teresa, to Teresa. And I, and I focused on the way that she was thinking. And I think that so much of the language that you're talking about is driven, yeah, by, by in, in thought. And of course, when I would go on stage, I would embody Teresa and I, I, I knew that I had to assimilate with her and, and, and in order to properly represent her, I couldn't undermine her by letting the audience know that I didn't believe in what she believed in or that I, I just couldn't comment or wink to the audience in any way to say, I know what she's saying is unfathomable or or t- terrifying. I really had to be authentic or else I would have really undermined the play. But I think in my approach to her, I didn't worry about believing in what she believed in. I, I, as you know, Hannah Arendt said, I went, I, I, I went, I had my imagination go visiting into, into her world and, and, and took on that debate. Because the play showcases five individuals who are all conservative Will Arbery gives them the opportunity to be expansive and diverse, whereas they might be tokenized if they were the singular conservative character in an otherwise mostly liberal-oriented play. The, the play is really unique in that we have a chance to see the different shades of perspectives amongst what the liberal New York off-Broadway audience might otherwise see as entirely homogenous. And I, I like that you brought up empathy because... Well, first, as you mentioned, Teresa refers to it negatively, and I think she says that liberals are empathy addicts, something along those lines, um, in a distinctly negative sense. I think that the idea that empathy is a bad thing is as startling to an audience, a New York audience, a liberal audience, as any political view, as uh, pro-life is the only way to think about pregnancy, or that immigration reform is harmful to America. Any of the viewpoints that are startling to to the audience, to a mostly liberal audience, I think might pale next to empathy is bad. We think about theater and we think about the, like a compassionate mindset towards humanity as being one where empathy is inherently good. And I think that the idea of of that book about Hannah Arendt obviously refers to her, Hannah Arendt's quote, The Banality of Evil, being that we shouldn't become desensitized to a mentality of evil-mindedness or of totalitarianism or of harmful actions in a way that might begin to understand what would lead somebody to act that way. So Teresa's view is that by having an open-minded perspective, we might begin to latch onto a view that we might otherwise see as completely abhorrent. Right. I think that, I mean, I think that for Teresa living in New York, uh, she is around the liberals perspective. She is, she has left a kind of insular world around religious views and everything. And she's ventured into New York city and she's being exposed to all different kinds of approaches and beliefs and, political mindsets. And so I think that that's part of her armor that she's taking on is an understanding of the other side so that you can fight it. And that she would, she doesn't want to go to a place of feeling around that, <laughs> but she wants to, she wants to think about it so that she can use it. 
And I, I totally agree. I think that art is about empathy. And I think that, or one of the things it's about is empathy. And I think definitely sharing human experience and sharing, being on stage and, and having that incredible thing of sharing an experience that people in the audience can relate to. I think that's just such an amazing part about art. And I don't uh, agree with Teresa's approach to how empathy should be used and, and, and how, how a lack of empathy should be used. But I do think that, I do think that white people have to be careful with, with empathy as well. I think that empathy can be voyeuristic and it can, you can use it to appropriate things and you can be narcissistic and, you know, and, and again, this is also, Ashley Chang talks about this beautifully, but I do think, yeah, making sure that you're learning and you're working on yourself instead of, oh, I, I know what that feeling is. So now I can be rendered that I don't have to do my work around it. I think it does point a light towards how empathy can be performative. And that's what I meant by the, the audience maybe feeling jarred by that idea that they were like, wait, we thought we were all on board with empathy. And hopefully a play like this kind of unsettling an audience in a slight way, not that they're going to rethink their ideas about public policy necessarily, but more that it kind of shakes them out of that rootedness in how we exemplify empathy, not make it something that is displayed, but something that is felt, that's listening-based. And I think one of the profound parts of the structure of this play is that these four semi-recent graduates of a university are anticipating the arrival of the mentor, in one case, a parent, who's about to be named the president of the university. And she's a figure they really admire so much. And when she arrives, especially for Teresa, there's the sense that, that this like reverence towards this older figure who's like this like beacon of conservatism. Mm -hmm. She like systematically unravels Teresa's belief system, sense of identity, sense of who she is, sense of self. And the audience ought to, and I hope does, and I did, feel empathy for Teresa because the whole point is you don't have to agree with every political view and mindset and way of life, but you're able to open your heart or your eyes towards someone's area of sensitivity and just listen closely. And that's just like a profound part of the structure of this play and the way that the delayed arrival of this person who you hope will satisfy all these views and then somewhat deconstructs them while still in the vein of conservatism. <laughs> well, I, mean, I think that that's what, I think that Will does an incredible job in that scene of my character is saying, while she's saying she's putting Trump down, the, the professor character, my, my character is saying that, well, Trump's rhetoric has always been in the tr- picture. Trump is here because Buchanan paved the way. And, and, and yes, her generation uh, of conservatives, sometimes, sometimes not, sometimes we're very exposed, but sometimes hid their racist agendas behind code words like anti-communism, anti-collectivism, and had secret societies like the John Birch Society. But it was always about race, and, and it was always about white Western civilization staying in power. So my character thinks that I'm I'm continuing on, and I'm kind of naming her for what 
my generation of, of the people that Teresa's around and these kind of Bannonite alt-right perspectives are saying is, well, this is, this has always been the way. So I think that there is that, that, that scene is really incredible because I think the professor doesn't want to be associated with that. So, but, but yeah, I think you're absolutely right that that is the part of the play where I feel I, as far as not venturing into my feeling around Teresa, that was the part of the play where I, I did start to feel her because she was broken and that this terrifying thing is revealed to her how much she needs the love and the, and the respect of this professor, that that's what she's came, that's what she's come for to say, appreciate me, look at me, look at the work I've done. And instead she disowns her and she is kind of a mother figure to me as well. And she disowns her. And I, I think for somebody who speaks so much in the play and is so, armed with incredible debate in that moment, she is rendered speechless. And we feel her, I think she sits there and feels her hate and her loss of love and her loss of God. And, and it renders her speechless, which is amazing to see after she's, you know, been so full of language. Yeah, that's well put. The idea of identity politics, I think kind of sort of like came to a new area of revelation in the 2016 election because I think people came to the awakening that this is not, that identity politics are not specifically a liberal concept, that basically everybody has a sense of identity. And and what I think is so interesting about the anticipation of, of Gina, the mentor, and the, her arrival is that though everyone in the play is conservative, they're all Catholic, they all attended a Catholic university and all align themselves with Catholic and very right-wing values, that there is a slight generational divide in terms of what identity politics looks like in conservatism. It's just like an interesting thing I noticed that, that there's something that, that Teresa thought would be a, a linkage across generations and she's sort of stunned to realize it, it, it is but it isn't there's like i'm comfortable with the concept but not the image in the way that gina refers to trump as chemotherapy in other words something that's unpleasant but necessary is mm-hmm. how i interpreted that line right yeah i mean i i do think i do think there is a direct link to all of this and i do think it's all i think that people don't want to align themselves with different schools of conservatism, but I, I do think it's all connected. And I think it's, and I, I think that that's what I'm trying to appeal to her in that moment. And she doesn't want to be associated with, with the approach that I'm taking. I think that it's been really interesting and horrifying and sad watching this because like I say in the play, as Teresa says in the play, we get into kind of a debate around single issue voting and that being around abortion. And I really think going into this uh, recent election of people, there were a lot of people still trying to align themselves with Trump because of calling themselves single issue voters. But I, I really don't think that you can, I think calling yourself a single issue voter, I just don't, I don't see it. I think you're voting for all the issues he stands for. And that includes white supremacy. And, and I think it's all connected. So 
I think it is really scary and terrifying, but I, I do think that what you were saying earlier around there being different, that all these, that Will has drawn all these people and he has drawn them with love too. Like he's drawn all these people and they're full people and they're not caricatures and they're fully drawn and human. And I think that yeah, instead of maybe what we're accustomed of seeing one conservative in a play or somebody that's playing the part to bring in the conservative perspective. I think that this was just five different people and with varying different approaches and I and I and ideas. And I think that it was they were all individuals and they had different beliefs and different views. So Ezra Klein wrote a great book this year called Why We Are Polarized. And one idea he writes about that I really was taken by is that our political views are based on a sense of goodness or good values. So when you have a certain political view, there's a certain sense that a good value is propelling that view. And of course, that can lead to really divergent thoughts. You can have a sense of good values leads you to support strong borders or you could have a sense of good values leads you to support immigration reform. They can totally go in different directions, even though you're starting from this point of my values are, are worthy, are based on goodness. And it's central to this play that conservatism is linked to Catholicism. They are, these are religious, faithful people. It's not just they were raised to just like be nice to your neighbor or like you catch more bees with honey. <laughs> it, the idea is like your, the, the teaching and the education that deeply imbues their values is based on a sense of faith, religion, and morality that then leads to a worldview that then shapes political viewpoints. And I just wanted to ask you how you portray someone who has such m deep moral conviction. How do you channel that center that has it's so strong and unyielding to propel how a character thinks and acts. I think that again in the way that I kind of approached Teresa's sense of morality and rightness and righteousness was really to to use this this Hannah Rent approach. I mean I really I really attached myself to that because it really made sense to me. I wasn't going to believe what she believed. I wasn't going to become her in that way. And yet I knew that in order to do this play justice, I had to imagine what her thought process was and what her beliefs were and then, and then commit to those debates. I mean, her whole thing is understanding thought that we have lost the ability to understand each other's thinking and that she's using that as a rallying cry to these uh, to her you know friends that she is having this reunion with to say in order to like win this war that she's talking about we have to understand the other side's thinking so that we can debate our way out so that we can win and so for me really to understand her morality, her sense of morality and her views was to understand her thinking, was to kind of use the suggestion she was suggesting, which was to understand each other's thinking. And then, of course, because Will has drawn this whole play with such love and with such agony, 
to understand where she's coming from, to understand what she's missing, what she wishes she had and she doesn't, to understand the ways in which she's broken and desperately trying to repair herself. And I think that's through debate. And I mean, another thing that's incredible about this group of people is their ability to stay in the room, or in this case, to stay outside in the in the night around this fire pit, that people don't walk away from the debate, even though it gets very heated, even though it gets very charged and they disagree. This debate, they're not fighting. It's extremely passionate and they're in love with, she's in love with her ideas and she's in love with God and she's in love with, it comes from this incredibly emotional place, but she's learned to to cut the emotion out because I think it, it makes her arguments more effective in a certain way, even though she speaks with a lot of love and a lot of grace and a lot of terrifying passion. So after having the, the physical space at Playwrights Horizons to move about in as you create, Teresa, how did you prepare to channel all of that using your shoulders and upward? <laughs> yeah, I mean, I I did it in my bathroom. My bathroom is four feet by five feet. It is tiny. And it really was, as you said in the beginning, it's, it was really a production. Danya really directed the reading or not even reading presentation. And Will was in the room being ever present as he always is. Isabella Bird, the lighting designer, was spending hours making sure that we created this feeling of night and darkness that you can kind of disappear into. Obviously, Laura Jelinek wrote, did an incredible scenic design for this play, and that was that so inspired the, the world in which we moved into this. Serafina Bush did the costumes. Justin Ellington was on making that horrendous sound, that frightening generator sound, and, and making sure that the sound was coming through in a way that was effective. We had Ryan Kane work with us in this most recent edition who had helped stage manage in the, in the actual production. So everybody was, it was a real production. And Isabella Bird had like created this, like we had sheets hanging everywhere. I was shrouded in darkness and she has a single light shining on all of us. And Justin Ellington had created this soundscape that just brought us into this night and I felt like we were right back there in the night. And what was so amazing about doing it, because I am a person of the theater. I love the theater. I think that what's been sad about this time of being in quarantine, I think people have been hugely inventive and creative in the ways that they've continued to make theater. But for me, one of the things that I love so much about theater is that we can breathe the same air, that we're in the, that we're in the space with the audience that there, there's a dialogue happening between us, that we're sharing something and, and that that can't happen. But I, I do think that what was so incredible about this virtual presentation of the show was that I think Danya and Will, they were talking about how up close this language is and that now we really have so much access to these debates. And because they are moving with so much speed and so much intelligence. And so to really cling on to these arguments and to be able to unpack and dissect their way of thinking as they're moving along, I think was supported by this, by this version actually of being this close. And Danya directed the hell out of it. I mean, she was extremely 
specific around angles and how we used the camera and how we turned away from each other and how you could make certain private moments and how we could make it so two people were having a communion of, of thought, even if they weren't able to go off to a side of the stage together or something like that. She was very specific in the direction of it. And for me, I mean, in, 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 in the theatrical performance, people obviously responded. Like people would, when I would speak, people were <laughs> sometimes like, so, so furious and expressing that vocally, which is part of, of theater. And I love that part of theater, but this was an, another amazing iteration where everyone was muted. You had no space. It wasn't, it wasn't about your conversation. It was really these people in their bubble that we are not used to experiencing. And I, and I think in some ways that was even heightened by this very intimate setting of being this close. And then Donya also really, and, and Will, both helped so much with how to take something that's theatrical and, and reaches a whole room and how to make it this intimate setting where, where we're just like you and I are, we're right here with each other. We don't have to reach for each other in any way. So it was very private. And, and it was strange to hear afterwards, like, oh, 4,000 people watched today because it was very private in an amazing, terrifying way. It, it really was unlike anything I'd ever experienced. Same here as a viewer. And I think what made it feel really suitable for the Zoom platform is that the liquid black background with only your faces illuminated and just your ideas going out there really did conjure the experience of people talking late at night. Like you have no idea what time it is and you're just caught up and you're like, how did we get from here to there in the conversation? And it's happening in real time. So it was truly the kind of thing where the lack of movement about the stage was, was not a hindrance in any way. And then afterward, watching clips of the show and seeing the way that, that you move and the way you gesticulate when you talk about the four turnings, I was like, oh, that's another take on this scene. <laughs> right, right, right. Um, but the reason why I contacted you truly five minutes after watching it no, oh, thanks. Was because the last thing I had seen you in was at the opposite end of the, ex of the spectrum of the acting experience, but also so impactful, the show itself and your performance in particular, which was small mouth sounds that I want to weave into here, in which you're at a silent retreat <laughs> and hardly anything is said. Or right. communicated. Right. Can you tell me about why your character in that play, Alicia, goes on a silent retreat? Is she the type of person to do that? Because now we're at this other side of acting where someone is doing something that is physical, where speech will be put aside for several days. Right. Yes. I, I do think that Alicia in Small Mouth Sounds has the most trouble staying quiet at a silent retreat. So it's not lost on me 
that <laughs> in Will's play, I couldn't stop talking. And in Beth's Wool's play, I also couldn't <laughs> maybe maybe that's something for me to look at um, <laughs> but uh, this is a silent play I mean not entirely there there are large chunks of text and but I will say that Bess does an amazing job of giving very in-depth character descriptions of why they're there and and why they've come to this silent retreat and what has transpired and and says in her playwright's notes that it's not necessarily necessary for the audience to really understand all the background of these people, but just for the actors to take. So so even though there wasn't dialogue in as much dialogue as you have in other plays to understand circumstance and relationship and history, it's very it was very much in the writing of this play that she created what was unspoken dialogue or what was physical dialogue in a certain way. And I, I do think that these plays are very different, but I do think it's interesting around both of them being in some sort of Teresa and Alicia, but some, some sort of agony. And one is attempting to solve it through silence and reflection and in Alicia's approach. And one is navigating it through language and debate and what she deems as an urgent rallying cry in Teresa's approach. So I think that both make sense to me in, in a human regard. And I do think that both plays have an incredible rhythm to them. And so that's been, I, I think for me, one of the greatest joys I've had in, in working on as on, on new plays that I've had is I've, I've worked with people that understand rhythm so well. It's so satisfying as an actor to land in some, somebody's writing who understands rhythm. And I feel like I've gotten to have that a lot. So I'm really grateful for that. But yeah, in Alicia's case, she's gone through this terrible breakup and she is a bit of a mess and she's texting and stalking and reaching out to this ex who has just abandoned her and she has everybody in the play has a lot of shame shame is talked about a lot shame spiral so she and, and these others who are in their own sort of pain and or processing grief have come to this silent retreat as a means of yeah reflecting and, and processing and we never know why she and this person broke up or what the circumstances were right um but we do see her calling him many times and reaching his voicemail and letting out different kinds of like primal yet silent screams. Yeah, the silence. And I was wondering how you created either the small mouth sounds, the breathing, or the, the just physical noises of Alicia, like how that became expansive there are one or two moments where it's almost like taken to it's like almost like elastic cartoonish effect like all the layers she removes upon entering the silent retreat like you would think if you were coming you would come in with not so many layers of clothing that would have to come off right or not kicking your boots off or mm -hmm. or having potato chips versus like a more silent snack right. Right. Yeah. So no, she's how described how noises come about in rehearsal and in performance. 
Yeah. Well, Rachel Chavkin is an, so such an amazing director and has an, an, an unbelievable gift of assembling a cast and and creating a play and making everything cohesive and everyone's in the same world. And I think she was very smart in figuring out how to tell the story through physicality, through sound, through small mouth sounds, through image, through what was all the uh, emotional baggage that we were carrying and how did that display itself physically or, or, or what we actually came in with as far as physicality. But yeah, but best describes her. I have a lot of bells. I have a lot of zippers. I have a lot of, just a lot of, a lot. <laughs> she's always running late. She's always breathing hard. She's uh, frustrated. She's, you know, constantly looking for cell service to, to stalk this ex-boyfriend. She's, yeah, she's, she's, she's not, she's not happy. She's not in a well place. So I think that her, she just doesn't fit. She didn't fit in that retreat. And so you, you watch somebody try to fit in something that they didn't fit. And I think that that was satisfying to play because it was uncomfortable. And I think it was probably uncomfortable to watch. (laughs) It was really fun to watch in that the fish out of water thing is always really delightful. And people who are ill-suited to their environment is always really funny and amusing. And it's not only you, there's other characters who are, you get the impression like they were gritting their teeth, clicking submit on the registration to this silent retreat. Whereas for other people, like like the yoga instructor, it's like the most natural thing in the world. And then of course the like the inverse realization of who actually might be more enlightened or less enlightened right? Um, based on the way they actually live their lives. The yoga instructor is a bit of a womanizer and doesn't wear his wedding ring until he's about to leave. So I wonder if Alicia, though she's comes into the scene looking like someone who stayed at the bar the night before too late, <laughs> if she's someone who gain something from all that experience. Absolutely. I think she says after that silent scream where he keeps screening her phone calls when she's trying to reach the ex-boyfriend in the middle of the night, she has that explosion of, of silent sound. She just screams into the night and I think she releases him. I still think she's in pain and I still think she's probably going to stalk him. (laughs) but but she definitely I think she definitely grows there and she had definitely has a moment of letting go 100% I mean she says goodbye to him at the end of that scene right right but that's a kind of like that exhalation is like a, a really like exhaling him from her experience Yeah. That's cool. I mean, one thing I was thinking about in terms of the distinction between heroes and small mouth sounds, besides the obvious speech and lack of speech, is the idea of spirituality Mm. because a spiritual, a meditation retreat is the kind of place typically where a religiously observant person would not go because they go to church or synagogue or mosque. Like prayer is the outlet and they already have the, 
the means through which like they know the prayers or the hymns um they know the other language if it's not english or at least have some familiarity to say the words like that's the access point towards spirituality i i think i mean i it would be interesting to see some studies on this but it seems like the the demographic of the retreat of the meditation type of retreat intrigues people who think of themselves as spiritual but not necessarily religious or connected to observance did mm. do you have a sense of that in in thinking about your character and thinking about like the the framework of this play that i know was based on beswell the playwright's own personal experience right yeah i i definitely don't think that alicia had any sort of practice of stillness or or reflection yeah i guess i think that the distinction i see between these two things is between these two characters of teresa and alicia i think that that i think these silent retreats are about finding yourself and finding and really reflecting and being still with yourself and being silent with yourself and meditating on on things and and trying to become enlightened around things whereas teresa is reaching for others to join her so i think that for me the big difference between the two is they both feel religious to me in a certain sense one just feels reflective and one feels like a war cry. <laughs> so yeah. Well, I, I think like each in terms of the spirituality spectrum, it seems like each end could learn fr- can borrow from the other and maybe benefit from the other in that the the world of heroes of the fourth turning it need not be only Catholicism, but any organized religion with specific practice and Catholicism is very much ritual based and practice based is one where it's all prescribed and you need it at its terms or you're or, or you're not or you're not a participant in the in the retreat realm in the spirituality realm people who practice meditation there are guided forms that are prescribed though it's very much self-oriented and self-actualizing you find it when you find it and i think that thinking about those two and i certainly wouldn't like develop a thesis on these two plays together had you not been in both of them <laughs> but but i think it's been a really cool point of reflection thinking about this interview today just these two things together that that the spiritual can can learn something from like like the openly spiritual can learn something from like things that can create some kind of organization and structure and maybe historical basis and then the other side can learn to maybe like open it up to different ways of finding enlightenment or finding truth or like more than one path toward toward some kind of like self-identification. Maybe as a last thought for today, you've been in so many different roles, which is really a testament to your versatility. Oh, and you. I wonder when you obtain a script for the first time and you're looking at the character, what is your first approach toward the character's voice when she speaks and how? I think it's about figuring out why she's speaking and what she wants. I think that that's the, the driving motivation 
behind speech is what are we after? So I think that that's what I think about when I'm looking at dialogue is what is she after? And then I, and then I, I'm really, I really am fastidious around rhythm and punctuation and beats and pauses, silences. I think that those, I really abide by those things. And obviously you have to be free and you have to let go. But I, I do think that there is a reason why things people are saying the things that they're saying and also the punctuation and how they're saying them. So that's also a thing that I really look at is how much breath they have, where, what, what's the punctuation around things and how is that reflecting what they're saying and how they're saying it and why. So I, I think there's both a feeling approach around what are they after and then a, a more intellectual approach around how they're expressing themselves in, in their composition of language. Zoe, thanks for joining me today. Oh, Lonnie, thank you so much for having me. <laughs> I wish you a very productive, healthy, happy, sane year ahead. You too. And you too. Um, thank you. Thank you. Thank you so much for listening. If you enjoyed this episode, please subscribe on iTunes, Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts. And follow Places Everyone on Twitter podcast production and original music by Cody Crabb. Artwork by Jennifer Klockner. See you next time.